Lesson 6. The Kingdom of God, an event of the future. Some master texts, first of all. I quote, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. And they will come from the east and the west, from the north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. That's Luke chapter 13, verses 28 and 29. Another quotation. Truly I say to you, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That's Mark chapter 14, verse 25. Another quotation, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Luke 22, verse 18. When you see these cataclysmic events of the end of the age, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. That's Luke chapter 21, verse 31. Another quotation, thy kingdom come. Matthew 6, verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. That was Micah chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. Our discussion in previous lessons has centered around the fundamental concept of the kingdom of God, the theme of the Christian good news. It is easy to demonstrate from Scripture that Jesus built his whole mission and ministry around the kingdom idea. It is therefore disconcerting, to say the least, that modern evangelism has little to say about the kingdom. It appears that the gospel itself is in jeopardy when the kingdom is absent from the message. The honest seeker for truth will find this startling difference between what Jesus and the apostles taught as the good news and what is now presented as the gospel. This will provide a stimulus to dig further in the quest for the precious information that leads to salvation. It is commonly agreed by commentators on the New Testament that the kingdom of God has a present and a future reference in the teaching of Jesus. Attempts to define the kingdom more precisely are plagued by a tendency to focus almost exclusively on the present aspect of the kingdom. The future kingdom is usually dismissed with a vague reference to its consummation. The future dimension of the kingdom is the primary one in the New Testament. No text says that Christians have inherited the kingdom of God. That cannot happen until Jesus comes back. The kingdom is the goal of all Christian effort. The spirit of the kingdom, the preaching and promise of the kingdom are certainly present whenever the kingdom gospel is believed. But the kingdom 
as the empire of Jesus on earth is in the future. We can have June's weather in April, but confusion would reign if we said April is really June. It's impossible to grasp the meaning of Jesus' favorite term, kingdom of God, unless we pay full attention to the overwhelming volume of references to the kingdom as an event of the future. It appears to be a dislike of this essential New Testament fact, which causes Bible readers to fix almost exclusively upon Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, as their favorite kingdom text. It reads like this, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Reading this text to the exclusion of scores of verses which describe the kingdom as a future event associated with the second coming, one might conclude that the kingdom was first and foremost present in its king, Jesus. Or, following the King James Version of Luke 17.21, that the kingdom is within you, that's to say, in your heart. The King James is almost certainly mistranslated here, since Jesus never spoke elsewhere of the kingdom as internal in the human heart. If the immediately following context of Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, is taken into account, it becomes clear that the coming of the Son of Man, which Luke elsewhere says is the coming of the kingdom of God, Luke 21, 31, that coming will be, quote, just like lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky. On the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Luke 17, verses 24, 29, and 30. In a later chapter, Luke reports Jesus as saying, and I quote, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and upon the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. That's Luke chapter 21, verses 25 to 31. With this evidence before us, it is utterly impossible to confine the kingdom of God to the presence of the Messiah in Palestine in the first century, much less to a religious ideal established in the heart. Jesus may well have said, as modern translations confirm, that he as king was among them and they were failing to recognize the kingdom as represented by him. Other scholars claim that Luke 17.21 means that the kingdom of God, when it comes, will be visibly 
universally and not something hidden or localized. The kingdom of God for Luke and the other New Testament writers is primarily the rule of God to be imposed upon a wicked world by the powerful intervention of Jesus at the end of the age. If we do not reckon with this fundamental Old and New Testament fact, we strip the teaching of Jesus of its motivating dynamic, the need for us all to prepare now for the great day. We must all face the Messiah and give an account of our deeds, either through resurrection or survival until his coming. Has the kingdom come? It's important that we examine the massive evidence for the kingdom of God as a new stage of world history to be introduced at Jesus' return. To speak of this as the consummation, so-called, of the kingdom is misleading. The New Testament says that the present evil age is going to be consummated. That's to say, come to its end. Matthew 24, verse 3, when Jesus returns, the kingdom of God will at that time be manifested publicly. It will then be inaugurated as the governing body of the new age. Since the kingdom comes into power only when Jesus comes back, it is confusing to say that it has already come. Its coming lies primarily then in the future. We are to pray continuously, your kingdom come. Matthew 6 verse 10, Luke 11 verse 2. We must guard against watering down the significance of this petition by making it mean something like, may your kingdom grow, may your kingdom spread, or may your kingdom be perfected. For Jesus and the disciples, the kingdom has not yet come. Christians are to long for its coming and pray for it to be established so that God's, quote, will may be done on earth. This petition contains the perfect definition of the kingdom. It's a state of affairs on earth when God's ways will be followed. That state of affairs, however, cannot possibly be realized worldwide until the banishment of Satan from his present position as, quote, God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. The deposing of Satan must, in the divine plan, await the return of the Messiah. Such is the worldview which permeates the whole New Testament. The Lord's Prayer is directed to the coming of the kingdom in the future. We are to hallow God's name. We are to treat with awe and reverence his whole kingdom plan in Jesus. God's name refers to the whole revelation of himself, which he has granted us in Scripture. Our first priority in prayer is to request the coming of the kingdom when Jesus returns. The kingdom is then described as a new heaven and earth, when God's will is done on earth and also in heaven. It may be that the request for, quote, daily bread means bread for the morrow, that's to say, for the future kingdom. We need spiritual sustenance now to continue on the journey of faith towards the kingdom. The prayer ends with a request to be delivered from the time of trial preceding the kingdom and from the evil one, a reference certainly to the devil 
rather than to evil in general. The attempt of professing Christians to bring in the kingdom of God before the predetermined time must end in failure. Jesus operated always within the consciousness of what, quote, must be in God's purposes. Christendom as a whole has ignored the divine program and has even attempted, at least since the time of Constantine, to establish itself as the kingdom of God, ruling now, sometimes in partnership with the secular state. Such a thing is utterly impossible within the worldview of the New Testament. Satan is at present the, quote, ruler of this world system. Nations are at present definitely not Christian, definitely not the kingdom of God, linking arms with Satan in an effort to turn his kingdoms into the kingdoms of God is fraught with disaster. Those who take this path simply become, quote, friends of the world and in consequence, enemies of God. James chapter 4, verse 4. What have I to do with judging, that's to say, administering outsiders, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. Christian administration is now confined to the body of believers. Do you not administer, or should you not administer, Paul says, those who are within the church? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. Systems of belief that attempt to introduce the kingdom of God Politically now, so-called dominion theology, do not represent Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom. Certainly in the New Testament, the kingdom has not yet come. Speaking shortly before his death, the Lord Messiah did not expect to drink again of the wine of the Passover cup until the kingdom had come. I quote, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom comes. That's in Luke chapter 22, verse 18. Moreover, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, Matthew 27, verse 57, was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. And that was after the crucifixion and after the historical ministry of Jesus. I quote, and behold, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. You'll find that in Luke chapter 23, verses 15 and 51, and Mark 15, verse 43. Cleopas speaks for the disciples when, after the resurrection of Jesus, he expresses their hope, now apparently frustrated, that, quote, it was Jesus who was going to redeem Israel. Luke 24, verse 21. The redemption of Israel was linked in their minds with the coming of the kingdom in power. That event still lay in the future. Confirmation of Luke's understanding that the kingdom had not come with the ministry of Jesus is found in Luke 21.31. The dramatic events which will lead up to the return of the Son of Man in power and glory herald the coming of the future kingdom of God. 
I quote, when you see all these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is about to come. Luke 21, verse 31, from the Good News Bible. The nobleman in the parable in Luke chapter 19. The critically important parable in Luke 19 similarly places the kingdom of God in the future and associates it with the coming of Jesus to reign. The nobleman, that's to say Jesus, is to depart to a far country, that is, to the Father in heaven, to receive his authority to rule and then to return as king to initiate the kingdom. This information is given by Jesus to correct the misunderstanding that the kingdom was to be, quote, manifested immediately. Luke 19, verse 11. According to Jesus, there's no question that the kingdom will appear, but not in the immediate future. Compare with this Acts chapter 1, verse 6, and Acts chapter 3, verse 21. It is instructive to note that it was Jesus' proximity to Jerusalem at the time which prompted the excitement that the kingdom would come into power then. In its historical setting, this is exactly the kind of kingdom we should expect. Its capital would be Jerusalem, the seat of messianic government, called, and I quote, the city of the great king in Matthew 5, verse 35, just as all the prophets had envisaged it. Jesus says nothing, then or at any time, to suggest that their conception of the kingdom was fundamentally wrong, or, so to speak, crude. The disparaging term sometimes used by commentators it is only the time of the arrival of the kingdom which needs to be clarified. No precise chronological data is offered here or anywhere in the Bible to allow setting of dates. Much harm has been done to the New Testament doctrine of the second coming by those who succumb to the illusion that the date of the great event may be known in advance. An enormous confusion was caused by the Jehovah's Witnesses who set 1914 as the date for the second coming and when Jesus did not come then, dodged the consequences of their miscalculation by saying that Jesus came invisibly. Seventh-day Adventists proposed an unbiblical notion that 1844 marked a special entry of Jesus into Quote, the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. The parable of Luke 19 makes two important points about the kingdom of God. Firstly, the kingdom had not yet arrived, late in the ministry of Jesus. Secondly, it will appear in power and visibly when Christ returns from the, quote, far country at the end of an unspecified period of absence. When the Messiah returns, he will reward his faithful followers by putting them in charge of urban populations. That's in Luke 19, verse 17. And executing those of his enemies who, quote, did not want me to reign over them. 
Luke 19, verse 27. The kingdom thus described is certainly not confined to a reign of Jesus in the heart of men. It has authority to confer power on those who follow the Messiah and the right to banish the incorrigibly wicked by execution. The execution of others now, by those claiming to be Christians, would be unthinkable by the standards of the New Testament. This has not prevented some Christians from killing their Christian opponents. The case of Calvin's execution of Servetus over a doctrinal issue is the classic example of failure to understand the command of love. The Church has absolutely no right to take the lives of others in the present age. In every case where the coming of the kingdom is described, an event of the future is meant. We leave for the moment the occasional verse which implies the presence of the kingdom in a different sense in the ministry of Jesus. The phrase, in the kingdom. We should now examine a group of sayings which describe a situation where people are said to be in the kingdom of God. Is this in the present or the future? The phrase, in the kingdom, is first found in Matthew 8, verse 11, where Jesus says that many will come and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, while others will be refused entry into the messianic banquet. The event is perhaps the celebration promised by Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. There will be a, quote, feast prepared in this mountain in Jerusalem, at which the faithful will rejoice with Jesus. Further reference is made to this great occasion when Jesus announces at the Last Supper that he will no more drink of the wine of the Passover until he drinks it new, quote, in the kingdom of God. Matthew 26, verse 29, Luke 22, verse 18. Jesus obviously expects to celebrate with the disciples in the kingdom when the kingdom comes. Luke 22, verse 18. The kingdom is evidently future when James and John request from Jesus prominent positions with him, quote, in your kingdom, Matthew 20, verse 21. This is a request for recognition in the future reign or kingdom of Messiah. Although the petition cannot be granted, Christ confirms the reality of the future kingdom and its nature as a real government by stating that the highest offices in it will be assigned to those whom God chooses. Matthew 20, verse 23. Similarly, Matthew 19, 28 places the inauguration of the kingdom in the new age or new world, as the Moffat and NIV translate it. It is then that Christ, quote, sits on his throne of glory, that is, quote, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Matthew 25, verse 31 and his authority to govern is shared with his apostles. At the same time, the righteous, quote, shine forth in the kingdom of their father. Matthew 13, 43, quoting from Daniel 12, verse 3. This event occurs 
at the end of the age. Matthew 13, verse 40, a time when the wicked will be cast into a furnace of fire. Matthew 13, verse 42. A composite version of Matthew's and Luke's description of the kingdom leaves no room for doubt that the kingdom of God is a world government associated with the return of Jesus. I quote, I tell you positively, Jesus replied, in the reborn world, when the Son of Man takes his seat on the throne of state, you too will be seated on twelve thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. You are those who have stayed with me through all my trials, and just as my Father has promised me, actually the Greek says covenanted me, his kingdom, so do I now promise or covenant to you that you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. Matthew 19 verse 28, Luke 22 verses 28 to 30. That's from the authentic New Testament translation by Hugh Schoenfield. We can easily establish when the disciples expected to rule with Christ in the new world. With crystal clarity, Matthew tells us quite precisely when it is that Jesus is to sit on his throne of glory. Quote, when the Son of Man will come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit upon the throne of his glory. Then the king will say, inherit the kingdom. Matthew 25, verses 31 and 34. At the risk of repetition, we give the following combined version of Jesus' important sayings about the future. This information provides a clear picture of God's plan for the introduction of the kingdom. I quote, In the reborn world, when the Son of Man takes his seat on his throne of glory, that is, when the Son of Man comes in glory, Matthew 25, verse 31, you too will be seated on twelve thrones, eating and drinking at my table in my kingdom, Luke 22, 30, and governing the twelve tribes of Israel. This state of affairs has never happened, proving that the kingdom has not yet come. Entering and inheriting the kingdom. When the center of systematic theology is founded on the recorded words of Jesus, the kingdom of God will be seen as the sum total of biblical Christianity. Unless we strip the kingdom of its historical significance and invent new meanings for it, we will have little difficulty grasping its essential character as a real world government to be prepared for now and awaiting manifestation at the second coming. Within this messianic framework, the New Testament tells a coherent story. Without it, the New Testament can be, and has been, bent to suit almost any ideology. The concept of entry into the kingdom, or inheriting the kingdom of God, appears throughout the New Testament. When is this to occur? We find an unequivocal answer in Matthew 25, where the blessed are invited to, quote, inherit the kingdom 
prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, verse 34. This will happen, quote, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and sits on his glorious throne. Verse 31. Evidently, the inheritance is to be acquired in the future at the return of Jesus. Elsewhere in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, entry into the kingdom is equated with entry into, quote, life, or rather, the life of the new age, or as we might say, new age life, which has nothing whatsoever to do with popular movements under that title. Mark places entry into, quote, life at a time when the wicked living at the coming of Christ will, quote, go into Gehenna, into the unquenchable fire. Mark 9, verse 43. Entrance into life, or the life of the coming age, in our versions inaccurately translated as everlasting or eternal life, is exactly the same as entrance into the kingdom of God. Teacher, what good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? If you wish to enter life, keep the commandments, Jesus said. Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, which is exactly the same in meaning as kingdom of God. Who then can be saved? Entering the kingdom is equivalent to being saved. I quote, In the new world, you will sit on thrones to govern the twelve tribes of Israel. Being saved is the equivalent of ruling with Christ in the kingdom. Everyone who has left houses for my sake will inherit eternal life, that is, life in the coming age of the kingdom. The concept is based on the prediction in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Matthew 19, verse 16, 17, 23, 24, 25, 28, and 29. This basic vocabulary controls the New Testament. The Christian inheritance is always placed in the future. In one verse only, Colossians 1, 13, Paul speaks of the transfer of Christians into the kingdom of God as already a fact. This is not untypical of Paul's thinking, since all the realities of the future may be tasted in the present. The kingdom exists now in heaven, where Jesus is preparing to establish it on earth. A single verse should not, however, be used to contradict the predominant evidence of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, nor the clear statements of Paul elsewhere, in which he places Christian inheritance of and entry into the kingdom in the future. The phrase, quote, kingdom of God, is used normally in St. Paul of that messianic kingdom which is to be the reward and goal of the Christian life. Hence it comes to mean the principles or ideas on which that kingdom is founded, which are already exhibited in this world. That was from the International Critical Commentary on Romans chapter 14, verse 17. In Romans 14, verse 17, Paul speaks of the kingdom being righteousness, peace, 
and joy in the Holy Spirit. This should not be taken to contradict his sayings elsewhere, which place the inheritance of the kingdom at the second coming. Though Christians have already been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1.13, only a few verses later, Paul says, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Colossians 3, verse 24. The kingdom of God is mainly future. It's important that we emphasize that the arrival of the kingdom of God in the New Testament is predominantly a future event leading to a new world order on earth. The following plain statements from leading authorities provide a necessary corrective to the widely held view that the kingdom is mainly in the present. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God is conceived, first of all, as something in the future. Mark 9, verses 1 and 47. Mark 14, verse 25. Matthew 13, verses 41 to 43. Matthew 20, verse 21. Luke 22, verse 16 and 18. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, and so on. And that kingdom comes from God. Mark 9, verse 1, Matthew 6, verse 10, Luke 17, verse 20, and Luke 19, verse 11. Therefore, it is something man can only wait for. Mark 15, verse 43, something which man can seek. Matthew 6, verse 33, compare with that Luke 12, verse 32, and something to inherit. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and following, Galatians 5, verse 21, James 2, 5, but he's not able to create it by himself. That from Eduard Schweitzer's book, The Good News According to Mark. Would that this clear statement had been taken to heart by every commentator. The objective analysis of the kingdom of God in Matthew, provided by the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, ought to serve as a much-needed guide to all our thinking about the kingdom. I quote, The kingdom, the central subject of Christ's doctrine, with this he began his ministry, Matthew 4.17, and wherever he went, he taught it as good news, Matthew 4, verse 23. The kingdom he taught was coming, but not in his lifetime. After his ascension, he would come as Son of Man on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 16, verse 17, Matthew 19, verse 28, and Matthew 24, verse 30, and would sit on the throne of his glory. Then the twelve apostles should sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In the meantime, he himself must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. How else could he come on the clouds of heaven? And the disciples were to preach the good news of the coming kingdom, as in Matthew 10, verse 7, and Matthew 24, verse 14, among all nations, making disciples by water baptism. Matthew 28, verse 19. The body of disciples thus gained would naturally form a society bound by common aims. Hence the disciples of the kingdom would form a new spiritual Israel. 
Matthew 21, verse 43. The same authority goes on to say, I quote, In view of the needs of this new Israel of Christ's disciples, who were to await his coming on the clouds of heaven, it is natural that a large part of the teaching recorded in the gospel should concern the qualifications required in those who hoped to enter the kingdom when it came. Thus the parables convey some lesson about the nature of the kingdom and the period of preparation for it. It should be sufficiently obvious that if we ask what meaning the parables had for the editor of the first gospel, the answer must be that he chose them because they taught lessons about the kingdom of God in the sense in which that phrase is used everywhere in the gospel of the kingdom which was to come when the Son of Man came upon the clouds of heaven. Thus the parable of the sower illustrates the varying reception met with by the good news of the kingdom as it's preached amongst men. That of the tares also deals not with the kingdom itself, but with the period of preparation for it. At the end of the age, the Son of Man will come to inaugurate his kingdom. There is nothing here nor elsewhere in this Gospel of Matthew to suggest that the scene of the kingdom is other than the present world renewed, restored, and purified. The last sentence of our quotation makes the excellent point that Matthew does not expect believers to, quote, go to heaven, but that Jesus will come back to rule with them on a renewed earth. The perceptive reader of the New Testament will note the amazing difference between the biblical view of the kingdom and what in post-biblical times was substituted for it, a departure of the faithful at death to a realm removed from the earth. The complaints of commentators about the unscriptural idea that Christians, quote, go to heaven when they die, seem to have fallen on deaf ears. Cherished tradition remains unshaken by the celebrated Henry Alford's remarks. I quote from Henry Alford, The words, Great is your reward in the heavens, must not be taken as having any bearing on the future habitation of the glorified saints. The local question is to be decided by wholly different testimonies of Scripture, by the general tenor of prophecy and the analogies of the divine dealings. And all of these point unmistakably to this earth, purified and renewed, and not to the heavens in any ordinary sense of the term, as the eternal habitation of the blessed. That's from Henry Alford's commentary on the Greek New Testament, Volume 1. I quote again, The kingdom that Jesus taught was coming, but not in his lifetime. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God is conceived, first of all, as something in the future as cited also above, so say leading analysts of the gospel records, we may add a further statement from a recognized authority on Luke. I quote, It cannot really be disputed that Luke means by the kingdom a future entity. The spiritualizing 
interpretation, according to which the kingdom is present in the spirit and in the church, is completely misleading. It is the message of the kingdom that is present, which in Luke is distinguished from the kingdom itself. He knows nothing of an imminent, that's to say, already present development on the basis of the preaching of the kingdom. That's from Hans Konzelmann's Theology of St. Luke. It cannot be too strongly emphasized that the kingdom of God, the heart of the Christian gospel, is chiefly the kingdom which is yet to assume power over the nations when Jesus returns. The kingdom, as in some sense present in the ministry of the church, has been vastly exaggerated in proportion to the kingdom as future. Certainly the message of the kingdom is to be proclaimed now, and certainly the conduct fitting candidates for the kingdom must be demonstrated by Christians now, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12. But the kingdom, properly speaking, is the kingdom to be established when Jesus returns. In confirmation of this central key to reading the New Testament with understanding, we add the statements of two further well-recognized authorities. There is nothing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke antagonistic to the eschatological, that is, future view of the kingdom. The kingdom is not present in any sense not reconcilable with the fact that it is also and mainly future. The references of the kingdom are prevailingly of futuristic implication. Jesus did not dissociate himself from the traditional view that the end would come in the form of a catastrophic transformation culminating in the advent of Messiah himself, who would come from heaven. He seems everywhere to set his seal to this view. He steadfastly contemplated a final wonder of destruction and reconstruction which would be the perfect establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. That's from the article on eschatology in the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. The Grim Thea lexicon discusses the word kingdom in the New Testament and makes the following important point. By far more frequently than the use of the kingdom as present, the kingdom of heaven, or of God, is spoken of as a future blessing, since its consummate establishment is to be looked for on Christ's solemn return from the skies, the dead being called to life again, and the ills and wrongs which burden the present state of things being done away. As from the article on Vasilia, or kingdom, in Thayer's lexicon. The kingdom in the rest of the New Testament. If we examine the evidence outside Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find that the writers consistently use the term kingdom of God to denote the future reward and objective of the present Christian life. The theological word book of the Bible, among many other authorities, confirms this fact quite simply. I quote, God's reign or kingdom is still to be established it is generally in this future sense that the expression kingdom of God is used in the New Testament outside the Gospels. The kingdom of God is the dominant theme 
of the recorded teaching of Jesus. The Christian inheritance is identified with the kingdom of God, the earth, eternal life, salvation, the grace of life and glory. Compare Mark 10 verse 37, where glory is equivalent to Matthew 20 verse 21, kingdom. A place, that's to say Canaan, the world. Kingdom of God is the most characteristic description of the inheritance for Christians, the inheritance is future. The inheritance is the object of hope. Christians are heirs, presumptive. Their entering into their inheritance is still to come. Clear references to the future kingdom are found in the following texts. In Acts 14, verse 22, it is through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not understand that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Galatians 5, verse 21. People who indulge in such practices will never inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Be sure of this. No one guilty of sexual vice or impurity or lust, which is as bad as idolatry, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. James 2 verse 5 Listen, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom which is promised to those who love him? Second Peter 1 verse 11 By developing Christian qualities of character now, quote, there will be supplied to you entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, verses 26 and 28. Once again, I will make heaven and earth quake. Therefore, let us give thanks that we are to receive an unshakable kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Flesh and blood, that's to say human beings in their present constitution, cannot inherit the kingdom of God that is, a transformation of our present bodies into spiritual bodies is required for inheritance of the kingdom. This will happen at the second coming. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and 51. Revelation 11, verse 15. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah, as to say, at the future second coming. Contrary to so much contemporary preaching, the gospel of the kingdom remains, throughout the New Testament, the message of salvation. Not only this, by kingdom, the New Testament writers do not mean an abstract rule of God in the heart now, nor do they mean the visible body of Christians, the church. What they do mean is the government which will intervene to produce the peace and harmony on earth for which man strives so hopelessly. That this is a basic fact of our Bible is attested by distinguished names in contemporary scholarship. Though the same conclusion may be reached by anyone conducting his own careful Bible study. The preaching of the kingdom of God in the book of Acts obviously refers to the kingdom of God which will begin with the parousia, 
that is the second coming of Christ. That's from A. Henshin in his commentary on the Acts of the Apostles. Another quotation, nothing obviously distinguishes the term kingdom of God in Acts from such apocalyptic, that is future and dramatic use it has in the Gospels. For example, one enters it through much tribulation, Acts 14, verse 22. That's from H.J. Cadbury's book, Acts and Eschatology. Luke's understanding of the kingdom is that it is still in the future and it will mean the restoration of Israel. That's a quotation from Kevin Giles in Reformed Theological Review. In Acts, the term kingdom of God is used only of a future event. Luke's theology anticipated a restored Israel, that's to say, a real external kingdom on the earth in the future. Acts 1 verse 6. That's from Earl Ellis's New Century Bible Commentary on Luke. A final quotation correctly summarizes the New Testament evidence for the good news about a future kingdom of God on earth. What Luke describes as apostolic belief and teaching is a far cry from what is presented as the gospel in our day. I quote, Acts includes many familiar elements in the New Testament preaching. The preachers preach the kingdom of God or the things about it. Acts 1 verse 3, Acts 8 verse 12, Acts 20 verse 25, and Acts 28 verses 23 and 31. The kingdom of God appears from almost the first verse to the last verse in the book of Acts. Kingdom of God constitutes a formula apparently parallel to the writer's more characteristic single verb evangelize. That's from H.J. Cadbury's Acts and Eschatology. A summary. A world of information is involved in the Christian gospel of the kingdom. The genius of Christianity is concentrated in the word kingdom. This essential saving information is often withheld from the public, though they are deluged with appeals to accept what's called the gospel. Centuries of tradition have contrived to convince Bible readers and churchgoers that the kingdom of God is mainly an abstract rule of God in the heart of the believers. This is in flat contradiction to the New Testament. Though the Christian documents recognize that the power of the future kingdom has already intruded into the present evil world systems, the kingdom has so-called come upon individuals when they are freed from demon oppression, as in Matthew 12, 28 and Luke 11, verse 20, yet the kingdom of God is firstly and predominantly the new world order which cannot and will not arise on earth until Christ returns to inaugurate it. This fact is revolutionary in its implications for the understanding and practice of the Christian faith, indeed the Christian gospel. It means that the whole concept of the Christian future as a departure of the believer at death 
quote, to heaven is a misrepresentation of the biblical teaching. The Bible views the future in terms of hope for rulership with Christ on earth at the second coming. Attempts to move the millennial kingdom of Christ and the saints of Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 into the present so-called our millennialism are symptomatic of the complete dislocation of the biblical scheme which has occurred through a fundamental misunderstanding about the kingdom. This affects the gospel and every facet of New Testament teaching. Our whole traditional structure is colored by Augustinian Platonism which continues to receive uncritical acceptance by whole denominations claiming to base their faith solely on the Bible. Underlying the rejection of the biblical view of the future is an anti-Jewish and anti-Messianic tendency. Churches have fallen under the spell of the notion that what is, quote, spiritual cannot be related to a new political order on earth. Theology, therefore, constantly suppresses or ignores the obvious messianic themes of both testaments or tries to, quote, reinterpret them and make them fit its own platonized version of the faith. This continuing soft peddling of the plain teaching of the apostles about the future prevents whole sections of the Bible from having their intended impact as a stimulus to hope and persistence in view of the glorious future of our world. A whole dimension of the New Testament is, in varying degrees, missing from contemporary theology and preaching. In biblical Christianity, the future is so much more sharply defined, making a correspondingly greater impact on life now. Recovery of the New Testament dynamic will go hand in hand with a clarification of the good news or gospel about the kingdom of God. I finish with a quotation. Old Testament prophecy teaches that the kingdom of God will be ushered in by a divine intervention rather than through the natural processes of history. And it is this viewpoint which is indispensable to apocalyptic eschatology. Jesus shared this outlook. That's from Desmond Ford's book, The Abomination of Desolation in Biblical Prophecy.